Good afternoon, Patriots. You are tuned into Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today we'll talk about getting rid of cities and some conspiracy theories as to why there are container ships piling up off our coasts. All next on Living with Liberty. A while back, I did a segment on what the country would look like if the largest cities essentially seceded into self-ruling city-states. And I also covered what impact we would see to the makeup of our Senate in that what-if scenario. About a month ago, I came across an article by Dennis Prager that was along those same lines of thinking. Asking the question, what if we broke the large cities out into their own entities, essentially into those self-ruling city-states? It's still an interesting thought to me. What if we did that? The large cities are a drag on the rest of the state in most instances. The large cities have a heavy hand in dictating statewide elections, especially when you get into Cities like New York City, which is about 40% of New York State's population. Chicago, which is um, uh, pretty significant, somewhere around 25%, I think it was, of of uh, Illinois' population. Then you work your way out to California, where we, you've got uh, L.A. and San Francisco, which make up large, large portions of that state's overall population as well. Those Large mega cities, those big city centers, if you will, have a pretty heavy hand in terms of dictating statewide elections, how those swing, and also with that, the policies that go into effect at the state level, since there's so many people packed into those uh, into those cities, and they, uh, you know, as we all know, tend to be uh, very, very blue areas. And, you know, it just doesn't stop at the state level. Uh, When you have large cities like that, you're carving out a large amount of districts within those cities uh, just because of population density. So it affects things like the the House of Representatives at the federal level as well. Uh, Because, uh, you know, as I was saying, those those cities are going to have more congressional districts packed within them than the rural parts of the state. Uh, which also can give them more sway in terms of policy at a national level. You know, our only only recourse with that is is the Senate, uh, which you have two people, uh, two uh, senators um, elected, which are supposed to be the uh, kind of the check on the House of the the House of Representatives, if you will, that sanity check, and. You know, in most instances, since we've uh, since we elect senators at a statewide basis, you know, those big cities have a large sway over the senators that are elected as well. Now, what I'll do is always I'll link Prager's article on this idea. It's titled Imagine No Big Cities. Prager comes at the topic in a little bit different manner than I did for the show I did. Um, on on what if we got rid of uh, large cities. I focused pretty much on the political aspect of things. 
the Dennis Prager article focuses more on the cultural and quality of life perspective. Now, I have a few points from that piece that I want to cover here. Uh, and again, I encourage you to, to read it. It's a, it's a fascinating article, and, and um, Prager brings up a number of good points that I'm not going to cover here. Uh, I'm just going to try and hit the, the highlights, the high level. So the first point Prager makes in reference to those large metro areas seceding from the states is that those states would lose a major tax base and some of their best orchestras and other artistic institutions. But the gains in quality of life would completely offset any financial or, or, uh, or artistic losses. Now, this statement, uh, it's pretty much right away in the article, has two important points to it. There's two issues here. You have the tax base issue, and there's a quality of life issue within this statement. Now, there's more, as I said, the article itself is focused quite a bit on the quality of life uh, piece of things. So I'll go into that a little bit more uh, in a minute here. Right now, I just want to focus on the, the tax base issue. Now, while it's true that there would be a tax base loss, no doubt you're, you, you have a large city that secedes from a, a state. That, that's a lot of people and a lot of taxpayers that are, are uh, going to go along with, uh, with that city. I would think it would be in the neighborhood of being a net even in terms of uh, the tax revenue to expenditures is concerned if you look at it holistically. If we look at cities in comparison to uh, the, the large major cities, major metro areas in comparison to uh, the small rural cities or towns, the cities have major infrastructure needs. Therefore, they get more in-state aid than the rural areas do. It's There's more highways, there's more roads, there's more things like public schools, and certainly those artistic institutions, the, the orchestras, the, the museums, things like that. So if we pull the major city out of the state, it certainly would decrease the tax base. But what it would also decrease is the infrastructure burden that the rest of the state taxpayers would have to bear for propping up that major city. Now, instead of propping up the crumbling infrastructure of, you know, said major city, pick one, Chicago, uh, New York, LA, Dallas, Houston, whatever, pick one. Instead of propping up, instead of the rest of the state paying into this, call it the, we'll call it a, you know, paying into this tax um, pool here, which is then distributed out, um, you know, amongst the the municipalities of the state in accordance, obviously, with, with their needs and population. It, instead of propping these major cities up that just waste the money, those tax dollars could then stay more local and be better utilized in communities. The, the people would get more money than, uh, or, or not maybe necessarily more, but at least the money they paid in back out in, into their communities, minus the government's skim off the top for doing the, the, you know, the collecting of said taxes there and paying their bureaucrats. Even better would just be let the uh, municipalities set their own rates and they keep the money even more local. Yeah, that's a discussion for a different day. But there wouldn't be this need to draw from the large pool 
of state tax dollars where you'd have the rural people paying into um, into the, the tax pot here. And those dollars that really could stay and help that rural community are getting funneled to the large projects, the infrastructure needs of the major cities. And in a state of like California, where it's it's a large state, I mean, how many people really in, in Northern California are going to uh, be able to, or how many will go and, and really realize and utilize the amenities of Los Angeles? And, and, you know, they're essentially paying for that infrastructure, but they'll never utilize it. Yeah, you can say it's for the common good, right? But it's really, again, the local dollars are better than a, a large pool getting funneled out. Uh, you know, there's some things, commonalities, highways, things like that, that you should have a pool for. But as far as funneling money out for every other little pet project, you know, I, I think rural towns and cities and even suburban ones get shafted on that. Now, looking further into this here, uh, in the, at the second piece of the statement from Prager, he states that... Uh, he says that states would lose some of their best orchestras and other artistic institutions, but the gains in quality of life would be completely offset um, or would completely offset any financial or artistic losses. Now, let's be honest here. What middle class family and below, let's call it, um, how many of those uh, folks are really visiting things like orchestras and other artistic institutions any more frequently than once a year? How many times are you, you might go like myself, you know, middle-class American, right? Uh, orchestras are fine. I haven't ever been to a symphony orchestra concert ever in my life. I mean, so, so for me, it's in that instance, it's, <laughs> It's not even once in a lifetime that I'm frequenting things like an, a symphony orchestra. You know, museums and artistic institutions, you know, maybe we'd go once a year. Um, and, and that's that, right? It's not like I'm going there, you know, once a month or very frequently. It's, it's once a year, if that. I mean, and you think about it, what suburban or rural family is making the trek into the city to partake in any of those things any more frequently than once a year anyway. And like I was saying before, it's from my experience, and I'm going to venture a guess uh, the experience of a lot of you out there, it's often less frequently than once a year that you're visiting things like art museums and, and history museums. Um, and, you know, maybe you have a, <laughs> maybe you go to an orchestra concert once a year, maybe you don't go at all. Are you really making those the, the trek into these cities to, to do that. Do you have like this the, a season, you know, these orchestras sell season tickets and things like that. How many, you know, people outside of, let's call it the, uh, the elites and the, you know, upper middle class to the rich that actually, you know, have uh, call it season passes or tickets, whatever they call them for things like orchestras. Right. I, I don't think those things are missed if if you have cities that secede from from states. Would they be missed? I I don't think so. I, I'm not I'm not partaking in them now. I I certainly 
you know, from uh, from my experience and uh, again, hazarding a guess because, you know, I'm kind of in tune, I think anyway, with what people like myself think, I'd say that a vast majority of the population wouldn't miss those things. They're nice things to have. They make the quality of life in the city better. But if you told me tomorrow that the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra had folded up, you know, it wouldn't throw me into a deep state of mourning. I would be like, eh, okay, that's probably a bad thing for Milwaukee. I'm sure there's people that enjoyed it, but life's going to go on, right? I mean, it's not going to... Um, it's not going to impact me one way or the other. Right. So I don't think you see, uh, you you don't, you don't really wouldn't miss that, you know, those sorts of things. And two, what the other thing here, um, other thought I have on this is what I see, uh, what I would think you'd see pop up is more of the regional artistic endeavors. You'd still have people that appreciate those things, you would still have people that want that are creative in that way and want to display their their creations, right? So why we wouldn't have the collections of the museums in the big cities, we wouldn't have orchestras or things like that. But what we would have is a more local flavor, I think. You'd have people that you actually know and appreciate uh, showcasing their talent uh, at, at a local level. It'd be more intimate, I think. Uh, and I think you would be better off and you certainly would be supporting someone locally, which is, uh, to me, is better. Now, kind of getting to the quality of life piece, um, you know, part of it is that, you know, those those artistic endeavors, those museums, I mean, yeah, they they make a city better, but again, yeah, how many how many times are you actually visiting them, right? I mean, it's like I said, once a year maybe. Now thinking about people's attitudes, so that goes uh, into quality of life as well. Think about the attitude of people towards you when you're in the big city versus a small town. Now I'm sure you know some of you live in big cities. Um, that's you know that's great. Uh, but there's definitely a difference in attitude of, of, a um, someone that lives in a big city versus those that live in small rural areas, uh, even suburban, uh, suburban areas. Now Prager puts it this way. He says the people living in them, the big cities are generally coarser and often just plain meaner. Now, are there mean people in the suburbs and rural areas too? Yes, there's jack wagons all over. But as Prager notes, you are more likely to be nicer to someone you have a reasonable chance of seeing regularly or developing a relationship with versus someone who's just a face in the crowd, which is what you get in the big cities. You you never know if you're ever going to come across this person again. For, for all you know, they could just be a tourist. Whereas in the small towns, you're going to certainly have a better chance of seeing someone again. Um, they're not likely to be a tourist and it's likely you're going to maybe at some point develop a relationship with, with that person. Again, depending how small of a town you have. The small towns to me have a family feel to them. Uh, people are more close knit. They're nicer to each other. 
there's I think more respect of each other in in a small town than there are in big cities. You have big cities, the big cities lack that intimacy among the people. Yeah, you get down to it at a neighborhood level. You have, you know, the regulars at Joe Sandwich Shop um, or, you know, what at, uh, you know, Jamie's um, Barbecue Grill. You'll get some of that in, in, you know, in the big cities. You have those little sub-communities, let's call them. But th- there's also a culture that goes along with that uh, that that I would say is the overarching um driving force behind people's attitudes in big cities. I think when you have no connection to something or someone, when you have people that are probably going to be a one-time meet and greet in your life and that's it, some sort of transaction, I, I think people tend to have more of a callous attitude towards that person, maybe not be as friendly as if you were to, say, go into a small shop in a small town where, you know, kind of that's everybody knows everybody, right? In the cities, there's more of an attitude of looking out for number one, looking out for me, than there are in the small cities, suburban cities, and rural towns. Small town people tend to be more humble. City dwellers tend to be more arrogant. Are there arrogant people in rural areas and small cities and humble people in the big cities? Yeah, absolutely there are. But again, we're, we're talking about uh, kind of um, uh, call it the old 80-20 rule, right? It, it, I, I would certainly uh, venture, I guess, that if we did a survey and had some sort of objective way to measure niceness, if you will, uh, if we were in a a rural town, you would probably get 80% of that might fall on the nice scale and you'd get 80% that fall more on the, the arrogant scale on in the big cities. People are a product of, of their culture and, and, and there is a culture, a difference in culture in the big cities than there are in the, in, and, uh, in the small towns. They each have their own, um, own cultures. I, I, like I said, small towns culturally are more family oriented. They're tighter knit. You get into the big cities, it's all about number one and being more, uh, I don't know if individualistic is the right word, because it seems to me that uh, with some of the ideas that come out of big cities, um, they certainly seem more collectivist, but there, there's not that emphasis on on family, I don't feel. We all tend to live in our own bubbles, though I do believe that small town rural inhabitants have a broader picture of the world than those from big cities. Now I have a quick story here I want to illustrate this point with. Our school district has a public comment board which the citizens can post their comments for the school board on. One comment that came in recently was from a Queens, New York transplant to my small rural city. Now I'll tell you what, don't ever feel bad for calling a large city liberal out of touch with the rest of America. They have earned that stereotype and bias. And Doc Mather can correct me later on my thinking here if he's listening. But in my opinion, and yes, I've read his book. Get his book. It's uh, Implicit Biases, a wonderful book. But I, I think I'm right here. Again, he'll correct me later. Give me some pointers if I'm off base. But I think we all have, especially as small town uh 
people have lived in small towns for a, a while. I think we have that that um, uh, stereotype and bias of of the big how to touch big city liberal. Uh, anyway, back to the letter here. So the letter it was it was written. You can tell you you read it. It's written from the classic big city coastal elitist liberal perspective. Now the individual writing the letter started out innocently enough, saying they moved from Queens to my town five years ago because the New York City public schools were garbage. Okay, fair enough. I get that. It's part of the reason that I moved to uh, the town I'm in years and years ago uh, was because the schools in the, the city of my hometown uh, were garbage. They were, you know, failing. They were failing when I was in them. I didn't want my kids to do that. And, you know, as our life journey's gone on, we've we've since taken to homeschooling them. Yeah, so I get it. Fair enough. You're looking for somewhere to go that has a good education system where your kids will have the best uh, best opportunity at um, getting a decent education that's going to put them on a path to be able to compete in our global economy. Fair enough. I don't fault anybody for that. I've done it myself. But <laughs> after that opening statement, it was apparent they didn't leave their garbage ideology that made those New York City schools garbage in the first place back in New York. It followed them to their uh, to my hometown here. They didn't take the perspective of, oh, maybe uh, they're garbage because I, you know, kept voting for the same thing, expecting a different result. No, I'm assuming they're 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 um, this person votes, right? I mean, I'm making that assumption here. I know not everybody votes, but the the ideologies there. It, it's it, you brought that that ideology that obviously was making uh, a failure out of this school system, this community that's bringing New York City down. You brought that to uh, to your fresh start. Uh, it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense to me. But then again, liberals typically aren't the most self-aware people on the planet either. Now, the rest of this letter was dripping with virtue, virtue signaling about how they teach their old, uh, their eight, now eight-year-old. So they moved here. Their kid was three because they were starting a 3K and all that. Why we need a 3K is beyond me, but whatever. They moved here five years ago. So their, their child could start in 3K in a decent school system. Their kid is now eight years old, and they're they're going through their letter, just virtue signaling how they teach their eight-year-old about the alphabet groups and different religions and BLM and George Floyd and blah, blah, blah. Insert every other liberal virtue signal here. Whatever it is they're virtue signaling about it, they're teaching their eight-year-old about it. Now, Again, begs the question, can an eight-year-old even comprehend that? That just, again, another topic for another day. Just blew my mind when you when I saw eight-year-old. Uh, anyway, back on topic here. Now, the letter writer stated also in, in their, um, their correspondence to our school board that now that they were in my hometown, they saw their first real-life Confederate flag flying from a neighbor's house. And um, they certainly seemed appalled by it. I, we, 
you haven't seen a real life Confederate flag anymore. I mean, uh, anywhere, I, I guess when you live in the bubble of the big city, which is a liberal crap hole, I, I guess that's the case. And the other thing that they noted in this, in this uh, letter is how much of a culture shock it was to move from such a diverse area to one that is such a white Christian area. The letter writer was unsettled by the lack of representation of alphabet people, different races, ethnicities, and disabilities in our community. Well, what the hell did they think they were going to find when they moved from the cesspool that is the New York City area to a small rural Wisconsin city that is one one thousandth the size of New York City? That's point zero zero one for those of you keeping track digitally. Now, like I was mentioning before, this person truly is a stereotypical liberal, only looking at the outside for diversity, never the inside, never looking for the diversity of thought within the people within the community. I'm just looking for the color diversity. How many different skin tones do we have? How many different people on the alphabet chart do we have? How many people with disabilities do we have? They're just looking at the superficial diversity, never the, the the thought diversity in our community. And to kind of tie up in, in this letter at the high level, the rest of the letter basically had the undertones of admonishment of our community for the people here being such major deplorables for our lack of outward diversity characteristics. Now, for the record, my town is very open and welcoming. Like I said, uh, I think there's a lot of diversity of thought here. Yeah, we're a rural town. Of course, it's going to be white and Christian. That That's just the way it is. You had to have known that when you were coming from big city America to rural America. It doesn't matter if you were going from um, New York City to... Uh, to, you know, even a mid-sized city, right? It's it's all kind of the same. You you get outside of those major population centers where you have a lot of the immigrants that come in and stay, that's the way it is. Now, for the record, again, like I said, my, my town's very open and welcoming. We have in our town, actually, a rather large Hispanic population for a city our size. We're about 10,000 people. I, it's We have a large Hispanic community here. So don't tell me we're not, you know, we don't have diversity just because it doesn't check every box based on population uh, characteristics of we have 49% people white in this country and whatever it is, 25% Hispanic and 13% black and 5% Asian, whatever it is, just because our community doesn't fall in that line doesn't mean we're not, we don't have diversity inside and out here. More Again, more importantly is the, the inner diversity of thought and how we treat people, not the outside. The honest truth here is, is myself and most everybody in this town, I say most because like every town you have you have those people that don't. It's it's a reality wherever you go. But the honest truth is, we don't care about your sexual preference, race, or ethnicity. We only care if you are a decent human being who will treat 
everyone in our community with respect. That is what we value here. Those are values. Those those go back to what I was talking about before on why small town uh, rural uh, folks are just generally nicer than the big city folks because we still adhere to those values where we respect everybody. We treat them uh, equally. We respect the diversity of thought, regardless of what you look like or, or what sexual preference you have. It doesn't matter. As long as you're a decent human being who treats everyone with respect, you'll do just fine here. But this letter is the mindset of the large city dweller. I expected to see the same diversity in New York City as rural America. And I was taken aback that I didn't. Well, maybe get outside of New York City and I bet you all you'd have to do is go to upstate New York and you'd find something similar there to what's here. I, that's the bubble these people live in. And then we get accused as the, the small town folks of not being cultured enough and not having a broad enough worldview. <laughs> That's the mindset of those in the city. It, I think in our rural towns, we, we have a pretty broad mindset. We know what's going out there. We're, ch- we're keeping tabs on, on, on those things and the happenings in the world and, and have a different perspective. But you know the, these large city folks they're they're it goes back to their air uh, mean and arrogant at times they know best and they are going to tell you that they know best and they're going to tell you what you need to be doing how you need to run your town how it's not diverse enough it's an arrogance here uh with this individual coming from the you know mega city uh, it's this type of arrogance that I'm going to venture a guess here because I, I don't know this person, but I'm going to venture a guess knowing my town that their mindset, their uh, worldview hasn't played well here within our city. Now, the last point I want to cover from Prager's article is this idea that large cities are an incubator for bad ideas and policy. Now, Think about it for a second. I'm sure there's some that are popping to mind already. Where did the moronic defund the police calls start in a major city? Where did this idea that men can defy biology and get pregnant? Hint, it wasn't in a rural town. Prager says this about these dumb ideas that come from cities. He says, between city dwellers, and residents of small towns and rural communities, which group is more likely to embrace the belief that men give birth? Now, maybe if city dwellers spent more time working on a farm, maybe they got outside their big city bubble, they too could figure this one out, that men, males, can't give birth. And maybe for added fun, we should send them over to the bull in the yard, in the in the uh, in the pen, and tell them, "Hey, that bull's about to give birth." It's I, true farm uh, <laughs> farm uh, experience here. Why don't you go help that bull uh, give birth to a calf? Maybe then they could figure it out. Now, I'll end the segment with this last bit from the uh, Prager piece. 
Rutgers University professor Leonardo Vazquez wrote that the American founder, Thomas Jefferson, was of one mind about cities. He hated them. Though Jefferson partied in Paris and had a hand in shaping Washington, D.C., he thought cities were dens of corruption and iniquity that would spoil the young American Republic. The more I study, I'm taking a Constitution class and, and I've just started reading the Federalist Papers and I, I research like this, right? And and these things that get brought up about our, our founding fathers and just how wise they were. I'm, here we have another bit of supreme wisdom from our founding fathers. Jefferson knew they already had seen what kind of uh, corruption and just nonsense comes from major cities and how that would be a detriment to the young American Republic. Now, we look at it now, and I think it's, it's at this point, 200 and almost 250 years in. Cities may not have totally spoiled the young American Republic, large cities, but I think if we look at things today, they sure seem to be doing a number on the grown-up American Republic. Now, switching to the last topic I have for today, it's, uh, again, uh, along the lines of uh, an economic topic. Uh, there's a lot of ships anchoring off of our coasts, east and west, waiting for berths to open up so they can offload their cargo, big container ships. Now, the last count I saw was that uh, off the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach alone, there's upwards of 100 ships, 70 to 100, depending uh, on the day, it seems. Um, and those ships are in various stages of, of uh, waiting to be essentially invited into the harbor to be unloaded. So they're either there's anchorage spots where ships can just drop anchor and sit and wait. If the, And there's only so many of those. So once those are filled, the rest of the ships are drifting off the coast, waiting for a spot to anchor. Now, as I was scrolling through social media the other day, someone had posted this story of the growing container ship Armada off our coast. One of the comments was full-out conspiracy mode about how this is the deep state's plan being executed to perfection, creating shortages, and insert other conspiracy theory nonsense here. I left that one alone. I have a personal policy that I don't regularly engaged with the, uh, engage with the unhinged on the internet. Uh, people like that, I, there's, there's no, especially if I don't have a relationship with them, there, there's no changing their mind. Um, and the, the, this post was just completely unhinged. However, Yesterday, I was listening to Dan Bongino's podcast, and I believe it was the one from yesterday. I was getting caught up yesterday, but I believe it was the one he dropped yesterday. And he basically went on a rant about how the Democrats plan this whole thing, how they're planning these shortages and they're planning to keep people short. And we've got all these boats offshore, and it's just part of their plan to continue to create chaos through having massive shortages of, of materials and, and uh, end products for sale. Now, I wasn't surprised by the unhinged internet commentator, who obviously had no clue about how supply chains actually work, 
and about actually uh, about what's actually going on within the world economy and within uh, the the production and manufacturing that happens all over the world and how it actually gets to our country and actually gets to the shelf. Uh, like I said, uh, you you get those unhinged conspiracy theorists like that. I leave them. I, there's no convincing them. I leave them alone. But I was a bit surprised that Dan Bongino would go down this conspiracy theory rabbit hole, especially considering how he's stated multiple times that he subscribes to Occam's Razor. The simplest explanation is the easiest explanation and the most likely explanation. Now, uh, I was chatting within one of my my social media circles here and and kind of laying out why we are where we are in terms of the shortages and things like that. And I know I've covered uh, covered it on shows before uh, why we are here. And as I was kind of discussing, I mean, even in this show. And even in the chat group, it was there. There's there's so much content and material. I'm not going to be able to cover it all in great detail here, or even in that chat group that uh, I was uh, in, or am I, or, or I should say I am in. A um, bunch of friends in there, uh, but I said what I'll do is I'm going to write a blog post on this to so I can lay it out uh kind of step by step and and get into greater detail on why we are where we are so look for that to come uh, in in coming weeks here i i i can tell you as someone that works in the supply chain industry it is not the the conspiracy theories out there about democrats or the deep state wanting to do this to us there are way 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 too many levers to pull in order to make this type of thing happen. What this boils down to, the reason we are in the situation we are in is a couple things. Gross incompetence by world governments, our, our elected officials and unelected officials where, um, where appropriate around the world. So gross incompetence. And, and, and two, just a, a total... Uh, with that gross incompetence, a total lack of understanding about how things actually work in the world, in, in the real world, in terms of getting a product from production to shelf. It, most of these elected officials and unelected officials and installed officials haven't done anything other than, for the most part, there, there's some, you know, we have business leaders, et cetera. Some are in Congress. They, I'm sure, understand this. But I'm sure they're running up against a brick wall of just idiocy from the career politicians that inhabit the swamps around the globe. Those are the two things that are at play here. Incompetence um, and just not having any real world experience. Actually, I'll, I'll throw uh, a third one in here of of just not, um, uh, let's call it not following the science, right? Not looking at things and saying, oh, well, uh, we're just going to keep doubling down because we'll look foolish if we um, admit that, hey, this didn't turn out as bad as we have predicted, but we'll just keep hammering everybody anyway because people are falling for it still. So just throw in a total lack of 
of following any sort of logic, reason, and scientific discovery as to also why we are where we are right now. Now, the other thing we need to think about here is what time of year are we heading into? This is about the time of year that the shipments for holiday shopping season start arriving. And I've seen many reports that the large retailers ordered earlier and heavier than they did last year in order to try and get product to the stores in time for the holiday season. Because last year they missed out on large numbers of sales just because the product didn't make it to the shelf. It didn't get off the boat on the train or truck to whatever uh, whatever warehouse they have unloaded and then taken to the store. So they ordered earlier and heavier this year, which meant shipments started coming earlier and heavier this year. And now we're heading into that season where typically you would see a lot of those, uh, those shipments starting to arrive anyway uh, in preparation for the holiday season. Now you couple that, couple that uh, extra demand, let's call it, with the already strained uh, port capacity that we had, the already strained transportation capacity that we have uh, domestically. And you have a, a situation where you have more and more boats parking offshore outside of the ports waiting to be unloaded throw in things like container ships are getting larger and larger. We haven't upgraded our ports to handle larger and larger uh, container ships in this country, like places uh, in like uh, uh, the ports in China have done or Rotterdam over in the Netherlands have done. They've invested in their ports to keep up with the ever increasing size of ships. So you throw that in there too. We just don't have that type of capacity at our ports to be unloading these mega ships in a timely fashion anyway. And that all goes back in, uh, to the, the contract, uh, especially Long Beach LA signed with the longshoremen where it's protecting jobs as opposed to investing in things like automation at the port and other uh, ways to increase capacity at the port. Uh, those are the things that are at play here. It, it, there's no... Uh, conspiracy here by the deep state or Democrats to create chaos by creating shortages. Now, are they using these shortages to create chaos? Yeah, probably. But they didn't intentionally do it. Uh, by all accounts, from what I've read recently, is that there is plenty of product within the supply chain. It's just not getting to the shelf because of the constraints at the ports unloading the boats as well as the transportation from the ports inland to their final destinations. The last thing to think about here with this conspiracy theory of withholding products from consumers for sale so we can create chaos by creating shortages is the revenue aspect of it. <clears throat> what happens if there are no products to sell? Companies lose revenue and governments lose revenue. Now, remember, if there's no products coming in to sell, the companies are losing out on their revenue, but the governments are also losing out on their tax revenue. They're losing out on revenue um, for the importation of those goods. They're losing out on revenue uh, at the state level on the sale of those goods. 
Now, if we think about this, think about it in a logical sense here, not just trying to finger point and, and create, um, uh, you know, some narrative of uh, some emotional narrative of it. This is Democrats creating chaos. Just think about the political don- donation history of a, the vast swath of our corporate overlords. Do we really think they are going to purposely sign up to have their profits reduced by withholding product from the marketplace? Further, how would that play, that request play in the next campaign cycle when the professional panderers come again with their hands out for campaign donations? And, and again, I don't think I can stress this point enough. Who, in their right mind, in the government, a government that wants to raise our debt ceiling and and state governments that complain they don't have enough money and want to raise taxes, who's going to sign up to lose out on tax revenue from the importation and sale of goods? Who, Who, in their right mind, is going to do that? At the end of the day, money makes the world go around, whether you're a corporation or the government. Who's going to sign up to purposely uh, hinder their revenue? Now, Bongino made his case that the Democrats knew this would happen and that they just wanted to create more chaos by creating shortages. They knew it was going to happen when they put these lockdowns in place and all these other uh, other policies to try and mitigate, um, uh, to mitigate the uh, coronavirus. Like I said, that it just that just doesn't make sense to me. I think the more reasonable explanation here is that our elected officials think no further than the end of their nose. They're only thinking about what can I do now to maintain or increase my power. That was the thought here. They I guarantee you they weren't thinking that if I do this, 18 months from now, we're still gonna see severe shortages and 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 be able to create some chaos. They weren't thinking about that. Now, again, those business owners that we have within our government or the former business owners even maybe that we have within our government probably did have that thought about because that's what you do as a business owner. You're trying to project out, okay, if I do this, what's going to happen? So you had a few of them, I'm sure, that said, okay, if we shut this down, here's, and we keep consuming, what's going to happen? We're going to end up with shortages. How long is that going to take us to recover from? Uh, I don't know. Like I said, we're going way into 2022, I think, before we see any sort of uh, return to health on our our shelves on, on a broad scale. But anyway, I guarantee you, they, uh, the political class was only thinking about power when they did this. We can make people do this, and we can do it under the guise of uh, of a virus that we now know is way less lethal than the Spanish flu of 1918. Yeah, again, there there may have been some who might have raised some questions, but a lot of our elected officials have no common sense. They have not actually done anything in the real world outside of their political grifting, or they've been in government so long that the part of their brains that contains the logic center has turned to absolute mush. And they don't think about things anymore. Now, what we are seeing uh, with this backup of ships outside our ports is simply the backup of our global supply chains due to incompetent and overreaching government and policies that didn't work. 
Occam's razor fits here. The simplest explanation is the most likely explanation. There are way too many levers to try and pull, way too much coordination that would have to take place across way too many industries, way too many levels of, uh, of raw material suppliers, way too many levels of supply, and there's way too much money at stake to try and coordinate worldwide product shortages. What we are living with here are the results and consequences of not only those incompetent policies, but the consequences of far-flung supply chains and inadequate infrastructure to handle this glut of volume. And that is the simple truth. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living with Liberty Outfitters. Now through October 1st, take 20% off of your purchases. Also, please don't forget that in support of the fallen Marines in Afghanistan, all proceeds from merchandise sales through October 1st will go to the A Soldier's Child Foundation. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor and Gab. My handle on both is at livingwithliberty. You can also go to the contact page of my website and email me or follow the links there to my social media pages. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.